grateful for the opportunity to stand here before you uh, this morning. I appreciate Brent for the opportunity to speak to you. And hopefully, as in the last song that we just sang, that a fire will be lit in us, that the Spirit will, will prompt us to doing better, to coming into a more complete wholeness in Jesus. So I'm going to ask a question, and I, I asked it the last time that I spoke, if you were here a few weeks ago on a Sunday night, what do you struggle with? And I specifically ask those who were here that evening to write that down. And if you didn't have uh, paper, to text that to yourself if you were using your phone. Because the subtlety of Satan is for us really to convince ourselves that what we struggle with isn't that bad. And that he entices us to things that we become comfortable with and that we live with in our everyday life. In Romans, the third chapter, beginning at verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now we know that, right? I think the world as a whole looks at the church as a group of people who feel like they're perfect. Or sometimes the group of people in a church may present that uh, to the world, that there is a perfection, but we know that's not true. Um, I think more recently, people have come to call the church a hospital, right? A hospital for sinners. This is where we find wholeness. This is where we should be healed. In 2 Timothy, the second chapter, in verse 5, it says, And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. So we know that, yes, sin is something that is an antagonist to us, but Scripture calls us to, to be better, right? Scripture calls us to strive for the mastery. We know sometimes that we sin, and we know that we're supposed to be better, but we can still feel broken in this world. There is a definition that I ran across uh, from seeking wholeness that I would like to share with you. All too often, we allow ourselves to be defined by the pain done to us rather than the God who can heal us. Jesus beckons us to wholeness, but he cannot accomplish his miraculous work in our souls without our permission. Wholeness is a state of being in which our fractured hearts are mended. The empty well inside our soul is filled up with the love of Christ, and we cease looking to people, possessions, or power to make us feel complete. That is a beautiful description of, I, I think, of, of what it should be. We, we tend to look at power and people and possessions to make us feel complete. We have an empty well inside of us that the love of Christ may not have filled up. So if we, as saved people from our sins, as Christians, people who manifest the love of God, why do we still feel broken? Why do we let the pain from our past or our present reside in our hearts? In Philippians, the fourth chapter, in verse 13, it says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. 
Can we? Can we do all things? I know that we can of ourselves, but with Christ, do you believe that you can do all things? Ephesians, the first chapter and verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And in Proverbs, the 16th chapter, verse 6, it says, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he make even his enemies to be at peace with him. God wants more for you and me in this life to just more than just to be redeemed. Now that's a big deal, right? We speak a lot of sin and salvation and don't get me wrong, that's important. If we weren't cleansed from our sins, we would have no hope in Christ after this life was over. But I believe he wants us also to be healed spiritually. In John 10 and verse 10, it says, The thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So he wants us to have life, but not just life. He wants us to have an abundant life. Now, I'm not talking about a prosperity doctrine this morning that teaches if you give, you get more, and God wants you to be rich, and God wants you to have all the toys that you want to play with. He just wants your life to be completely perfect. What I'm talking about this morning is being saved and not carrying around this baggage that we load up. Not carrying around the hurt that people have caused us. Not carrying around unforgiveness. Not carrying around pain. I'm talking about being whole. As whole as we can be in this life. I realize there's a day coming when it's complete wholeness. When we're transformed into the spiritual being that, that Jesus is like. And that there's no more pain and no more sorrow. And things are awesome. But I believe there's more for us here than we want to grab hold of. In 1 Peter, the third chapter, beginning at verse 10, it said, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open under their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? We have so many encouraging verses in Scripture that tell us that God is on our side. Sometimes we often forget it tells us if we want God's blessings, how we should act. How we should resist sin, how we should not lie, how should we, we should not partake in the things that God says is against His will. It takes all of that together to achieve what we want. So who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Typically, it's ourselves. When you get right down to it, we harm ourselves because we don't follow the things that Jesus has put in place for us. 
So what are those things? They're obedience, obedience to what Jesus would have us to do. In Colossians, the third chapter, beginning of verse 12, it says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. And if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also forgive others. And above all things, put on charity, or love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye also are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. That description of Christians... If we did all those things perfectly, we would have no problems, right? We would be whole. If we all treated each other the way that we were supposed to, if we all loved one another the way Jesus loved us, then things would be awesome. Philippians 4 and verse 6, it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. There are so many things, overwhelming things, that God has promised us. And if He wants our brokenness healed, if He wants to live for us to live and to feel those things that we read about in Colossians and Philippians, why do we feel so broken? Why do we some days feel empty? Why do some days are we angry and life feels like it's against us? I think there's a clue in the passage in John. If you want to turn to John 5, John the 5th chapter, beginning at verse 1, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay great multitudes of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been a, now a long time in that case, he said to him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I'm, I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked on the same, walked on, and on that day was a Sabbath. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of points that we could look at in this story. One is Jesus healed a man that didn't ask to be healed. Which I think shows us that Jesus knows exactly what we need. The man blamed others for not having been well. And he didn't answer the question. He never answered the question, do you want to be healed? 
The answer reminds me a lot, or the in answer reminds me a lot, of Adam and Eve and of us. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And who do we blame? We blame everyone. We blame people for hurting us. We blame others for not acting like we want them to act. We blame everything under the sun but ourselves, when in big capital letters, we're really screaming, it is not my fault. It's not my fault that I'm not whole. Jesus healed this man anyway, and it's the only account in Scripture that you'll find of Jesus healing somebody that they or their family didn't ask for, except for the people he raised from the dead and they couldn't speak. Right. He didn't walk around healing people or that we have an account of that didn't ask for his help. And when I say it's not my fault, let me make sure you understand that I understand the pain that others can cause us. I understand the hurt and that pain can cause brokenness in our lives. But, really, we are the reason that we haven't moved past that. Because God has given us everything that we need to do that. I'm afraid often we are like this man, and we become accustomed to living with our brokenness. We become comfortable living with the uncomfortableness. But why did the man not answer the question? I think it's odd until I look at me why don't I answer the question I believe as Christians we know the Holy Spirit lives within us and I believe he's prompting us every day he's pushing us for wholeness and every day he's asking you do you want to be healed but do we answer do we give excuses about everyone that's caused us problems? Or, we should scream, yes, yes, I want to be healed. I don't want to live with that. I don't want to live with hurt. I don't want to live with pain. I don't want to be compromised in my Christianity. I want to be healed. But I believe we don't, at least on my part, in the past because it's scary it's scary to be healed we make mats or beds of our anger that we can lay on of the criticism that we can toss to others we make beds of our sexual brokenness our pity parties of hate and evil and imaginations and we are very used to those feelings and we become comfortable so do you ever Imagine what it would be like if you moved beyond that. What would life look like for you if you moved past your struggles? I think the Scripture paints a perfect picture. Peace, joy, comfortableness. Our conscience wouldn't bother us. We could just love love others, and have joy. That's what it would look like. But here's why it's scary. I believe it takes courage. 
to do that. In 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter and verse 13, it says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, and be strong. So the thing is, I'll point out, that God's already called you to be courageous. Whether you use it or not, that's what He's called you for. It takes, to, it takes humility to be healed. In James, the first chapter, in verse 10, it says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. The very thing that we want, to be lifted up in wholeness, requires humbleness. And sometimes we're not so easily persuaded to be humble. It takes honesty. In Proverbs, the twist. 12th chapter in verse 22 it says lying lips are abomination to the Lord but they that deal truly are his delight we're already called for truth and it's going to take us to look at our sin and Jesus on the cross Hebrews the 10th chapter in verse 14 it says for by one offering he hath perfected I love that word he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified he did the work, but we're not taking what He gave us. So what does it take to be well? I think, first of all, it takes a hard look at our sin. There's an account in Numbers that I would like to read. If you want to turn over and follow along in Numbers, the 21st chapter. We're going to begin at the first verse. It said, And when King Arad of the Canaanites, which dwelt in the south, Heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If thou will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah. Israel made an agreement here with God. It's something that we see often in the Old Testament, in their wandering in the wilderness. They would bargain. I don't know if I want to use that word. They would bargain with God and say, if you will do this, we'll do this. Or, if we will do this, will you do that? And you know what? Who kept their word all the time? It wasn't the Israelites. <laughs> it was God. It was God that always kept His Word. But you know what? They forgot so quick. We can read on in this chapter, beginning at verse 4. It says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So, in other words, it was difficult. It was a hard road that they were traveling. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. So very quickly, after the success that they had with God, they turned against God. And, and it is kind of ironic in their complaint, they said, we have no bread. And then turned around and said, we loatheth this light bread. So, are they like us, or are we like them? 
that we don't recognize what God's blessed us with and we start complaining. In the seventh verse, continuing on in Numbers 21, I'm sorry, in the sixth verse, and the Lord sent fiery serpents. Sorry, I've I've moved on ahead. Let's go back to verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. And then in verse 6, it said, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. God rewards us with consequences from our actions. And I say rewards because He gives good gifts. And sometimes the things that we think our bad gifts actually turn out being good for us. He sent serpents among them, and they died. So then the people, he got their attention, right? He got their attention, and the people go to Moses. And they said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against thee and the Lord. Pray unto the Lord that he takes these serpents away from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon the pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a certain serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Have you ever been curious why God took a symbol of the very sin that the people were committing against him and put it up on a pole, and used it for them to look at and be well. Those serpents were there because they sinned, and they knew that. Why then put a serpent on a pole to make them well? Have you ever wondered why God didn't take away the serpents? That's what the people asked. He asked them, to please have God take these serpents away from us. But that's not the answer they got. They got a big serpent that was bronze on a pole. Kind of strange, isn't it? In John 3, in verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that so who whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life and in second corinthians 5 and verse 21 it says for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of god in him do you see a comparison at all in these stories jesus did Those were his words. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man's going to be lifted up, and he's going to save the world. It's kind of weird. I think God intended for Israel to be reminded of their sin when they looked there. Now, there was no power in that actual ornament. The power was in the obedience of the people to look at that ornament that represented their sin. So why put Christ 
on a cross. What is the purpose for you and I that Christ died on a cross? There's other ways to die. Ways that are not so public. Ways that are not so humiliating. Ways that are not so painful. Why do that? And let me ask you, when you look at Jesus on the cross, what sin of yours do you see on his shoulders? The song that was just led, How Great the Father's Love for Us, says he placed my sin upon his shoulders, and it was my sin that held him there. Why is it important for us to see our sin? And the very one that gave us salvation. I think that God wants us to know what our sin is. How are we going to be blessed through it and past it if we can't bring our sin and Jesus together? If you can't see the sin that's on his shoulders of yours, how are you going to know what you're forgiven for? The brokenness that you feel today, saved but broken, also needs to be laid on his shoulders. We know the story doesn't end there, right? He died for our sins. Could have been the end of the story. Our sins are taken care of. But he rose on the third day, and he did it as a symbol that there is life beyond the forgiveness of sins. There is hope. You have hope. Your sins died. Now you're new. You have a chance. And then he did something else that's of great importance. Now, I don't want to say it's more important than anything else because all of the aspects of his death, burial, and resurrection are important. He left. He went back to the Father. And he sent, the Father sent his Spirit to us. And I don't know about you, but where would you be without that? If there was nothing after the death, where would you be without the Spirit that God sent to us? He sent Him to help us. He sent Him to convict us of sin. He sent Him to counsel us. He sent Him to intercede. He sent Him to comfort us. John 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Do you let the Holy Spirit comfort you? Do you even recognize that he's alive and in you? Do you let him counsel you? Do you let him convict you? Or do we just push it away we bury it down and we don't want to deal with what opposes our sin but he's there and he will give you hope and I believe hope is the next thing that it takes for you to be healed we can easily become discouraged by sin's effect in the world 
I mean, all you have to do is step outside your door or turn on the television or listen to the radio and you see the broken. But Jesus is our hope. But yet, as a saved person, a Christian, do you ever think, will our brokenness ever leave? Will it ever go away? In Romans, the seventh chapter, Paul goes through quite a lengthy discourse to the, to the Romans, to the Jews there, about the difference between the law and grace. And we're going to pick that story up towards the end, Romans 7 and verse 19. For the good that I would not, would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I'm thankful Paul wrote that. Because when I don't do the things that I know I should do, or when I do the things that I know I shouldn't do, I know that there was a great man, an apostle of Jesus, who talked about the same thing. But a problem, I think, for Christianity is we want to hang our hat on that hook of Paul did what he didn't want to, and Paul didn't do what he knew he should. But that story didn't end there. Just because it came to the end of a chapter in the Bible doesn't mean that the, the theory or the, the subject matter stopped. I can't even think of the right word. But what he was writing continued. So in Romans 7 and 25... Just after he asked, who shall deliver me from this body of death? The very next verse it said, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He asked the question and he gave the answer. So then, he goes on and talks about living in grace. So then, excuse me, I'm lost again. <laughs> So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation in those which are in Christ Jesus, who for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that walk after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. But the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. 
But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And he's talking to us. He's talking to them at that church as Christians. So he's talking to us. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Son of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Do you know what quicken means? It means to make alive. The Spirit that lives in us is here to make alive your mortal body. And he's not talking about after you die physically. He's talking about now. After your sin is forgiven, he is going to make you alive in your mortal body. Then why aren't we? Why aren't we alive? The Spirit of God makes you, makes you alive. It gives us hope. So that hat that I said we want to hang on, Paul sinning when he didn't want to, vice versa, that we find comforting, I think Paul throws that hat off the hook if we really want to listen. Paul was about 13 years into his 30-year period as a Christian. Okay? When he converted to Christ, he lived for about 30 years. So about 13 years into his ministry is when he, woke, when he wrote, I do what I don't want to, and I don't do the things I do want to, and oh wretched man, who's going to deliver me? But that wasn't the end of his story. Another 15 to 17 years later, before Paul died, he wrote what we find in 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered. What a change. He went from a struggling man to somebody that was ready to die. Do you think he still spouted off what he wrote first? I think it's always with us. But I think he made progress. Because now he's saying, I'm ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought a good fight. I kept the course. I finished my faith. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord and righteous judge shall give me at that day. And not me only. He's given us another hat rack. Not me only, but to everyone that also love his appearing. What hope. What hope for healing. You can look at the life of Paul and see us. He never lost hope. He was not miserable when he was shipwrecked. He was not miserable in all the situations that he lived. You know why? Because he tells us, I have learned to be content. I can be abased, and I'm good. I can be exalted. I'm fine. I can be in the middle. It's okay. Why? Because he had Christ's Spirit in him. The Spirit of God in him. And he trusted it. He had hope in it. 
he saw his Savior die. Right? He saw him lifted up. All on that road to Damascus, when Christ came to him, it gave them hope in their faith. Paul knew his sins. How could you not remember killing people that were opposed to Christianity? I doubt he ever forgot, but he knew. He knew the severity of his sins. And yet, he believed in the hope of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and he followed him. And he was obedient. And we hate that word. Oh, here we go with the rules again. Obedience. You know, freedom is defined by the world as the absence of rules. You can just do what you want to. Freedom, defined by Scripture, is the presence of God in your life. Galatians 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Obedience is a way to being healed. And it's the third point. In 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who is presence and base among you, but being absent, I am bold towards you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I'm present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us if, as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of stronghold. Does that verse give you chills? Our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. First off, I want you to notice how you're pleaded with by Paul. He pleads with you by mercy, or by meekness and the gentleness of Christ, not by the severity of God. There's a difference. The severity of God is real. And it's held for those who oppose Him. The meekness and gentleness of Christ is real. And it's held for those who obey Him. And why are we so inclined to use the severity instead of the gentleness and meekness which we are called to be? How do you talk to yourself when you're thinking about your behaviors, the things that have broken you, the things that you're living with, how do you talk to yourself? With the severity and judgment of God or with the gentleness and meekness of Christ? When we're told to love everyone and that love, loving God first and loving your neighbor um, as yourself is what all the law and prophets hung on. It was love but we're very harsh. They both have a place in this world. Now which are you? Are you the one that opposes God? If so, 
You can think about the severity of God because you need to. But if you're the one that loves God and that follows Christ, take the meekness, the gentleness, the love, the guidance, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the teacher, and use that for your brokenness. Paul not only understood what we choose to ignore, but he also encouraged us in the embodiment of the Spirit in our lives. Our spiritual weapon destroys everything that sets itself up against God. Our spiritual weapon demolishes strongholds. Our spiritual weapon throws down imaginations. In Romans 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. What did Paul know that we don't? What did he know that we choose to not look at? That the battle is in our minds. It's in our hearts. Helen Ann's dad and I were talking one time um, about this, these verses because this was one of his favorite chapters. And he said, you know, I'm thinking the older I get that this reasonable service is talking about our reasoning. Not about that it's reasonable because Christ died that we do this. Because honestly, that doesn't always work. Because the feeling of His death doesn't always penetrate here. But God gives us wisdom to reason. And He gives us wisdom to work ourselves through this with the help of the Holy Spirit. And at that time, when he said that, I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> That's kind of off. But actually, I think he had a point. And I think that it's the point that is to be made that the struggle's in our heart and our mind. It's not carnal. It's spiritual. You can't hit it in its face. You can't tie it up and walk away from it. Because it's here and here. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, I'm, I'm all about practical application of the Scripture. I feel like that was something I just, I didn't, I wasn't able to do for myself, and nobody provided. And that's not a dig at anybody. But I know that thou shalt not. And I know that thou shalt. But figuring out how those work, how they oppose, how I can make them a part of my life has always been a struggle. So I want to talk about this a little bit. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now the one analogy that I guess I hung on to was that a bird can land on your head, but don't let it build a nest. We've all heard that. And I don't have any 
opposition to anybody that's taught that or spoke that. But you know what that told me? To shoo the bird away. Shoo it. Get rid of it. I did a survey of several people, and the top three answers are on the board. I love Family Feud. They're really not on the board. Um, but the top answers of this is, the most popular answer was to get the thought out of our head. That's what most people said that I asked. Get the thought out of your head. The second was replace the thought with something good or to sing. So those are all about distractions, right? Distracting ourselves. But what does the scripture say? And what some people said was capture the thought. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. A great analogy of this is like, have you ever been to the circus and you watched the tiger trainer? You know, in the wild, that tiger would have you for lunch. Like that. But in that setting, that cat would do tricks. It jumps through rings of fire. It stands up. It opens its mouth. The trainer puts his head in, and he doesn't bite. Why? First he captured him, and then he trained him. And he brought that tiger into the obedience of the trainer, and that tiger behaved like he wanted it to. So does this make sense? What is captive? You have to hang on to that thought. But you also have to invite Jesus into that thought. And that's where it gets really uncomfortable, isn't it? Because we don't want to think a lot about our sin. We don't want to hold on to why we do something. We don't want to walk backwards, as one of the persons said in the survey, to capture that and walk back to see the point where it held you captive. It's pretty good, isn't it? Just take a walk back through your life at the events that happened to you to the time where that got a hold of you. And ask Jesus to help you heal that. Look in the scripture. What happened in that moment? Why are you bitter or hurt or angry? Why are you despising the people in your story? Why are you not often forgiveness? You see, the reason we don't want to do all this is because it's painful. But we need to approach our thoughts the same way. Our thoughts come from a variety of things. They come from things we've learned, good and bad. They come from things we've experienced. We've came, they come from things we suffered. They come from our vivid, wild, crazy imaginations. They come from things that we desire. And then our actions come from our thoughts. Once we know the broken, the point at which the pot shattered in our life, then Christ can glue those pieces together. If I were to ask you this morning, 
Do you want to be healed? What would you say? Would you say, well, I've been waiting for somebody to take me to church, and they're not coming, so I'm just staying here. Or I've been waiting for somebody to come and apologize to me because they hurt me. And now I have this anger. I succumbed to the wrong thing at the wrong time. What answer? What answer do you give? Do you give excuses or do you say yes? And I I hope that we scream yes. And I hope that we do it because of this hope. That you are not in this by yourself. You're not in this alone. The scripture says to confess our faults to one another and pray for one another that we can be healed. There's healing that can happen between us if we know. And if we don't know, you're just going to live with it. If you don't confess it to God, you're going to die with it. There's hope. And I hope that's encouraging to you. Because, yes, it's scary. It's painful to look at our sin. It's painful to look at Jesus on the cross and to know He's there because of the way I've lived. But it's also encouraging that Jesus rose from the dead. And that you have life through the resurrection of Jesus. And obeying God is not a drag. It's not the thing that's going to bring you down. It's a rule. Okay, God's got rules. But obeying God is the best, the greatest thing that you can do to receive blessings in this life. And to make this life meaningful. So I encourage you this morning, look past the brokenness after you figure out what it is. Look past it and see the blessings and the promise. Do you want to be healed? If there's someone that that we can help this morning, as we stand and sing the invitation song, make your way to the front pew.